history tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 70th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And tonight we have a special co-host joining us, Janice Carlson. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in communications and secondary education. She spent many years in advertising, copywriting, and she has authored dozens of books, historical novels, novellas. And then she found out something, Denise, that she hears dead people. She hears dead people. (laughs) And so this has led her to write another book called Soul Sensing. I've read it. Love it. It's fabulous. How to Communicate with Your Dead Loved Ones. She's gotten lots of great reviews on it through magazines. She's talked to radio hosts across the U.S. who've also loved the book. She's currently working on her next book, which is detailing her visits to haunted and sacred locations where she's been working on her medium skills and sharing the information that she has garnered on those trips. And one of those locations just happens to be Tombstone, which is our subject for this episode. Janice, welcome to History Goes Bump. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I love your show. And something else people should know about Janice is she's also an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast. That's very important. Yes, it is. (laughs) Well, Janice, I thought we could start off with you telling everybody a little bit about yourself that wasn't included in the bio. And especially, you had a very interesting start to your life. You know, not a lot of people have to deal with death at a very young age. And you did with both a mother and a father. So why don't you share a little bit about that? Well, I had two dead parents by the time I was 10, and they both died of natural causes, but it was my biological mother, and then I was adopted by a couple, an Air Force colonel and his wife, and then he died when I was about 10 of lung cancer. So I feel like I got hardwired to the other side. I feel like both of those parents were talking to me and guiding me, and I thought that was normal until... I got older and discovered that other people didn't, they just didn't really feel connected to anybody on the other side. And that's largely, I think, because most people don't have parents die that young. But kids are quite receptive to uh, the spirit world. And that ability apparently never went away because by the time I was in my late 30s, I discovered that I could I could talk to other people's dead loved ones, and that happened by mistake one day. And I was visiting a, a friend. Well, she, actually, she was an employee who was going to be doing some graphic artwork for my books to help me promote my novels for these New York publishers. And um, she um, she had me over to her house because she was freelancing out of her house. And when I walked in, I said, you know what? I know the former owner of this house. And she said, you know, I really love this townhouse. And she had made it her own. She decorated it her own way. It looked different, but I knew it was the same place. And she said, I just wish that that owner had told me it was haunted before she sold it. And I thought, gosh, that's really weird because I've been up here for a lot of occasions and parties and baby showers and a variety of things. And I've, I never heard the former 
former owner ever talk about it being haunted. And as I walked further into this house, I went into her living room. She led me into her living room where we were going to discuss this advertising project. And I looked over at the piano, and this photo, this framed photo, caught my eye, and I said, I don't know why I feel compelled to tell you this, but that's who's visiting you. You're not being haunted. That is who's visiting you, is the lady in that photo. And she said, oh, that's my mother. She died about eight years ago in a horseback riding accident. I just kept getting all this information in my mind, like how the woman died and who the name of the person she was with when she died. And and she told me her name was, uh, her her name, the lady who had died, was, um, ended in, in Eam, sound like Darlene or Marlene. And this lady just smiled at me, this graphics artist, Jody, smiled at me and said, her name was Geraldine. And I said, she said, what, is she talking to you? And I said, yes, it's the weirdest thing. Because <laughs> at that time, back in, at the time that this happened, maybe early 1990s, there weren't people on TV doing medium work like Sylvia Brown and James Van Prager and, and those people. I, so I had no point of reference. I didn't, I, my only point of reference would have been a gypsy seance or something for talking to the dead. So to have it happen in broad daylight was, was really odd. And to have it happen to me, and it certainly makes you a believer if you weren't before. But she went on to describe all these details and she called her daughter Ducks. And, and I said, what does that mean? And she said, that was her nickname for me when I was little, because I would chase the ducks around in the farmyard, and, and she gave me a toy duck. That was one of my first toys. And so it, it was an odd experience. It was a very, it wasn't scary. It was just very spiritual. And um, I was very happy that I could connect her with her mother, who had died so suddenly and didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Now, Janice, you're saying that so calmly, but what were you thinking? Like, Were you hearing like an audible voice in your head? And yeah. was there a moment where you went, am I crazy? Well, so, yeah, I, I was very afraid she'd think I was crazy. But I also felt this presence of her mother channeling through me and very much urging me to talk. So it kind of feels a little bit like having gumballs fall out of your face. I mean, you, you know, it comes out sort of unedited. It was very much a channeling experience. Her, the energy of her mother was very clean and pure. So it was, it was like having a very spiritual experience, say, in a church or something. It was very cleansing, soul cleansing. Wow. So, and isn't it unusual that it took so long? Is it just that you weren't in tune with it? Or is this something that just came to you later in life? Um, I think I always had it, but I, I wasn't in tune with it. There just wasn't reason to think about it much because, again, I wasn't aware of the medium world and, and most of society hadn't paid much attention to that. And I'm always so surprised when I get new clients how few of them even know what a medium is. I often have to say, "Do you are you looking for an afterlife communication session instead of saying a medium session? This isn't something that happened again right away. It took a while before you had somebody else want to speak, have you speak for them, basically. Is that right? Right, right. Yeah, um, I had all these book deadlines, and you kind of feel a little like you've just been dropped headfirst into a barrel of pitch or something when you sign a three-book contract. <laughs> You're doing 
you're doing a lot of researching, you're changing your latitude and your longitude, you're doing up. These were all historical. So I, you know, would have to really climb into those places and create those characters as an outgrowth of the sense of place and time. And and so there wasn't really occasion to, but once in a while there'd be a death of, you know, in the family of a friend or whatever. And I, I'd feel so badly at these funerals, like, God, I wish there was something to I could do or say to help relieve their grief, you know, in the way that we all feel sure. in those settings. But then I thought to myself, well, but you can. And so uh, when I thought a, a reasonable amount of time had gone by, I would sometimes say to, to this friend, do you want to talk to your mother again? Are you, would you be comfortable with talking to your deceased brother? And if you are, I'd be happy to try my skills out, you know, because there's a long kind of testing period before you'd ever hang up a shingle and say, I'm a medium. Sure. And what I liked about your book, Soul Sensing, is... It's not that you're saying that everybody has this ability, but that everybody has this ability to sense, not necessarily right. in a mediumship kind of way or a right. clairvoyant way, but we all have that, I guess, sixth sense. And I would have to agree, it's just those little things sometimes when you're thinking about a song and you turn on the radio and it's on and you get those little, whoa, that was weird, or even a deja vu moment sometimes feels to me like it might just be that you're perceiving something on a sixth sense type of level. Right, and especially look for if it comes out of the blue. It's one thing to have memories come flooding to your mind about a deceased loved one if you're looking through a photo album of, of them and that kind of thing. But when it just comes out of the blue, really pay attention to it because that's usually a, a mark of their of them talking to you. What do you think about certain signs? I have a friend, he's the host over at the Curiosos podcast, and his wife's mother passed away last week, and she's... I guess, an atheist and doesn't believe in the afterlife and that kind of thing. But he said a peculiar thing happened to her. A little blue butterfly came flying up and landed right on her nose. And he goes, <laughs> she won't say anything about it, but he goes, I'm thinking it was kind of special. And I said, well, have you ever had a butterfly land on your nose? <laughs> exactly. Very rare. Yeah, that's very rare. So, yes, they can influence the minds of small creatures to do various things. So often, too, if you've lost a pet in a family, the deceased pet will channel through another pet in the family. You'll suddenly see behavior mm -hmm. that you would have signed, assigned to the dead pet coming through and, and the remaining cat or whatever, you know. And so they can influence the minds of pets and insects and small animals more easily sometimes than they can humans. Well, that is really, really strange because we did lose one of our pets not too long ago, and a lot of times after she passed, the, the other pet would start displaying things, and we're like, God, you're acting just like Dakota. Where did that come from? Yep. Yeah, exactly. And they, they, want, they feel disembodied, obviously, after they die because they are, and so often they will kind of climb into somebody else or, and channel a little and that kind of thing. It's usually not dangerous. Certainly, I talk about precautions in my book. But one thing I like to stress is, is don't write these things off as coincidences or just my imagination, because it takes a lot of energy for the dead to communicate with us. And I just hate to see people missing the signs that their deceased loved one is on, is, has survived death and is on the other side. Soul sensing and mediumship are different. Could you tell the listeners what the difference is between those two things? Well, everybody has soul senses. We've probably all had the experience of 
smelling cigarette smoke or something and no one is smoking in your in your presence or a certain cologne that kind of thing and very often you can assign it to a deceased loved one who's visiting i know whenever i smell cigarette smoke it's my mother-in-law because uh, she was a smoker and nobody in our household is and uh, so we always say hello and um you know it's just a way to acknowledge them and and it's a way for them to tell you that there's life after death. That's one of the soul senses, is with this clairolience where you can smell something that you'd assign to that deceased loved one, or a pet smell, or whatever, what have you. I mean, every pet, for instance, has their own little scent. And that's why I think it's so important when a pet dies to put their collar in a Ziploc bag and remember the scent of that animal so that you know when it comes around who's visiting you. But there's clair- clairvoyance, there's seeing. Spirits, and very often people who see spirits tend not to hear them. None of us have all of these soul senses, 100%. I don't, certainly. And I don't see spirits, and I think it's largely because that would scare me. Mm-hmm. So I tend to hear them. Interesting. You know? Yeah. So, you know, whatever you can handle and is, is probably what your deceased loved one will do. They tend to try not to scare you. That's good to know. If, if I saw a full-bodied apparition, even of somebody mm-hmm. that I cared about, I would be mm-hmm. just like you. <laughs> be too much pretty for alarming, me. you know, pretty scary. And it, it often happens at a very quiet time when you're receptive to it. It'll happen at night. And some people just really don't want to be visited at night and have to tell their loved ones. I don't mind if you visit. I love it when you visit, but don't please don't come at night because that would scare me. Now, your book teaches people how to develop their soul sensing a little bit more, right? Right. That's what that's what I got from it, that that's one of the main purposes is just to kind of I don't know if you want to call it teaching people, but just kind of guiding them and how they can develop those senses a yeah, little bit more. Yeah, exactly. And I think the most important chapter in the book is chapter three about why soul sensing works. And one of the re- one, the main reason why is because if you look at what we become when we die, it, it appears, you know, in the quantum physics world to be subatomic matter, obviously. They, they kind of even knew that around the turn of the 1900s. But if you read that chapter, you, you really see what we become when we die. I think that a lot of people ask the wrong question. They ask where we go when we die. But it's probably more important to understand what your loved one becomes so that you can understand how they function. You know, they may walk through a wall which subatomic matter can do. You may see them floating rather than walking. And again, that would be typical of subatomic matter. There's there's just a lot of parallels there that scientists have drawn even since the 1900s. And once you kind of understand that, you can be less afraid of them. You know, that behavior won't seem quite so scary to you. The other thing to know, I think, is that subatomic matter can be in two places at once. So it's kind of confounding to the living, but you can actually be in heaven and and visiting a loved one on earth both at the same time. And so when you get into that looking at what we become when we die, the science changes because you're talking about the science of quantum physics and not the rules of the material world, you know. So I think that it's possible for a loved one to be visiting an awful lot of the time, too, in a setting. That makes a lot of sense because I've been doing a lot of looking at quantum physics to explain maybe what's going on when people are seeing spirits. We we can't even begin to understand, are we looking at interdimensional? Is this time slips that this person is actually in that location in their right. time? 
at the same time right. that we're in the location in our time and we're seeing each other through time, you know, so. Yeah, through portals and time, absolutely, or tears in the time-space continuum. And, you know, I hear that a lot about Gettysburg, that often you not only see the spirits, but they'll try to pull you into the very traumatic time that they're in. It's not uncommon for a field surgeon or someone to beckon you to come and help him because they're in such terrible distress. And you get pulled into the whole drama of it, you know, it's in a time slip kind of way. Okay, you can take Gettysburg off of our list, Diane. No, <laughs> Denise doesn't want to go there and hear somebody yelling, nurse, nurse, and looking at her. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, it's unsettling, to be sure. Indeed. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime Bonus Cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. A very strange medical case presented itself in 1881. A man had been in a tragic accident that had taken his life. His body was sent off for an autopsy, and what the doctors found was quite strange. The man's organs were transposed. This means that all his organs were in the opposite side of the body than where they would be in a normal human. The heart was on the right side, the liver was on the left side. There had been other cases of people with transposed organs, but all died as infants. The fact that this man had lived into adulthood was quite amazing. But the case takes an even weirder, sinister twist. You see, these doctors loved having such a specimen. How could they possibly let this medical marvel go back to his family for burial? They decided that they must keep the body. They didn't need the head. After all, the brain is in both hemispheres of the head. Perhaps you have already guessed what they did. These unscrupulous doctors cut off the head of this man and attached it to the body of another. Then they sent that body to the family. The family, of course, noticed something amiss and sued. It's bad enough that doctors would do such a thing, but the fact that they actually thought they could get away with their deed is just plain odd. Scared yet? Boo! <laughs> On this day, September 21st, in 1937, J.R. Tolkien's classic, The Hobbit, was published. George Allen and Unwin Limited of London were the first edition publishers. It debuted with much acclaim, and by December, the 1,500-copy first run was sold out. The Hobbit was written for young adult readers and was nominated for the prestigious Carnegie Medal, but the book is enjoyed by adults as well. The novel is the recording of a journey taken by a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins. He joins 13 dwarves and a wizard named Gandalf in a quest to take back the dwarves' old home and treasure, which was taken from them by a dragon named Smog. Tolkien was influenced by many other works when it came to writing The Hobbit. 
George MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin influenced his imagery of goblins. MacDonald also helped Tolkien to meld his Christianity with fantasy. William Morse and Jules Verne also influenced Tolkien. Norse mythology runs heavy in the novelist. Tolkien was a Germanic philology scholar and had a passion for Norse stories. The novels withstood the changing of the decades and is even more popular today, having been made into a series of films by Peter Jackson. History Goes Bump Podcast. Well, you went to what is considered the West's most famous town as a part of this upcoming book that you're working on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book, and then we'll jump into talking about Tombstone. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to title it yet. I'm just working on the U.S. Southwest. And, and these trips, mind you, all have to be kind of tempered with you know, the needs of my husband as well, who had gotten quite tired of the sacred places in Sedona, you know, the vortexes, and said, I need to go somewhere, I don't know, masculine. And so he picked, um, you know, and this was after I'd hauled him to the yogurt places and, the, you know, the great salad places and all the artsy, craftsy stuff for days. Uh-huh. And he said, I just, I'm sorry, this is not, I can't keep doing this, you know. And I thought it was wonderful, but he said, we're going to Tombstone. That sounds good to me. And, it, you know, if you were going to pick, I guess, a really masculine destination, that would be certainly one of them. I've heard that Hoover Dam is a nice choice, too, but... So that's where we went, and it wasn't like one of my choices, but to my amazement, it just ended up being really haunted, and um, I met another medium there, and it, it was just really fun and scary and, you know, all the things I guess you look for in this kind of a, a vacation. And your husband was just rolling his eyes going, okay, we go somewhere masculine, and she's off and running again. Yeah. Ed Shefflin was a quirky-looking fellow. He had long black hair that hung below his shoulders, and his long black beard was tangled in knots. He looked 40, even though he was only 29 years old. His clothing and hat were very worn and covered in patches made from deer skin and rabbit fur. His appearance reminded people of a wild animal. Ed was part of a scouting expedition whose purpose it was to basically spy on the Chiricahua Apache tribe. Ed was also a prospector, and he was always searching for precious minerals and gems. He'd just been in the Grand Canyon area, but found nothing. He would wander out in the barren land around camp looking for precious stones. His fellow scouts would laugh and tell him that the only stone he would find out there would be his tombstone. Ed got the last laugh when he stumbled upon some silver. He named the mine Tombstone as a reminder of what the doubters had said. The year was 1877, and Shefflin is credited as founder of the town of Tombstone. As happened in that day, people heard about the silver strike, and they came to the area seeking their own treasure. They came for good reason because Ed's strike was essayed as the mother load. It was necessary for a town to be built, so a man named Solon M. Ellis came and laid out the town. Ed was a millionaire at this point, and he went off in search of more adventure. He was found dead in a cabin in Oregon, laying across the table where he was working gold ore. His journal remarked that he had struck it rich again, but left no indication where the find was located. Ed was brought back to Tombstone and buried in Prospector's clothing according to his wishes. A monument was built in his honor. By 1880, the town's population had soared to close to 20,000 people that were made up of white men, women, children, Mexicans, and Chinese. 
There were a hundred saloons in a thriving red light district. There were also theaters. Shefflin Hall was built by Ed's brother Al and still stands today and is used for government offices. It is the largest standing adobe structure in the Southwest. One of its claims to fame is that Wyatt and Morgan Earp saw a play there the night Morgan was assassinated. For a time, it served as a Masonic Hall and then it fell into disrepair. It has been fully restored and quite possibly could be the most haunted location in Tombstone. The most haunted location? The. The. (laughs) Cool. The sounds of spurs and something that sounds like chains have been heard many times. Groups of people hear it at a time, so it is hard to relegate to just someone's overactive imagination. Over time, the silver mine started filling with water and it was too costly to pump it out. The town slowed down and people started leaving. In the end, $37 million in ore was pulled from the mines. Today, around 1,500 people call Tombstone home. And that does not include the ghost. I mean, the first day we were there, we went to Big Nose Cave Saloon, which used to be the Grand Hotel in the days of the Herbs. So I think we're talking about the 1880s, roughly. Mm-hmm. And I just got this sense the minute I walked into that saloon that someone had stabbed someone else, like they'd snuck up on a man. One man snuck up on another and stabbed him out of the blue. And it turned out, I now I, what I do as a medium is the opposite of what you do. I purposely know nothing about the settings I go to. I purposely try not to know anything. Sure. And then I go so that I can confirm the vibes that I'm getting. And so I didn't confirm this yet out of my notes, but this, for, this furtive spirit, you know, snuck up on an, a man, one man stabbing another. The sense I got was that it was a Mexican or Native Native American who stabbed a wealthy white man who had been cruel to him or his clan. And I later found out that the whole place was was crawling with stories like that because all of these very wealthy people were there because of the silver mines. And a lot of them were from northern states. A lot of them were what, what was then the Republican Party. So a lot of the conflict you saw at the time was Civil War-based. You you had local people who were really more Southerners and Democrats and pro, pro-slavery at the time. And so even though the Civil War had been over for 15, 20 years, this still was lingering in the air, this this fight between the North and the, and the South, and the poor South, and the very wealthy North. So you have all these wealthy people with their scores of millionaires in that town that most people don't realize it's from the silver mines. And they needed a sheriff to come in and kind of pro- and protect them. I mean, who wants to protect wealth more than people who are wealthy? So that's kind of how it was set. So anyway, I go into Big Nose Kate's, and I guess she used to be Doc Holliday's girlfriend or something. And then we go downstairs, and I'm talking to the gift store clerk there, and she says, what brings you to Tombstone? I said, well, I'm a medium. I'm going to be writing about, you know, these settings we're visiting. And she says, do you know, when I won't feel stupid telling you this, but I've got to tell you that when I, you know, you're a medium, you'll understand. When I'm down here and I'm closing out at the end of the day, I have the, I always feel like somebody's sneaking up on me with a knife. And I said, gee, that's the vibes I got upstairs just now. And But I said, you know what? I think you're protected because I also see a Western sheriff protecting you. I see this Western sheriff who, who keeps an eye on things and makes sure you're okay. Well, a few minutes later, we wandered down to the undertaker's shop. And um, the lady who runs that place is it's kind of a museum-like fit now. And 
and her name is Nora. And it turns out she's a medium, too. So she says to me, did you visit Big Nose Tates and all these different places? And she said, that was my daughter down in the basement. You know, and she gets spooked out when she's down there, especially on Halloween. She wouldn't she wouldn't be there that night. She just closed early and got out of there. But I told this is Nora speaking. She says, I told her not to worry because I've seen the sheriff that protects her. Weird to have two mediums in the same place. It was just like double antennae. And my husband was just blown away. Did you know that a marshal was shot and killed there? Well, I mean, I'm assuming that some of the herbs got nailed, but no. Uh, the first marshal of Tombstone was Marshal Fred White. And okay. he was shot down in the street by Curly Bill Brocius. This was back in October of 1880. Okay. And he okay. does uh, apparently walk the streets around there. How close is the Birdcage Saloon to where Big Nose Kate is at? Is this the same? Oh, a couple doors down. Everything's really close to everything. Okay. Well, he was killed in front of where the Birdcage Saloon is today. Okay. So okay. maybe, possibly, he does wander down there as a protector because, I mean, there is a, the first sheriff that was ever there. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Very, very effective at protecting her. Yeah. But for her mother and I to both be getting the same vibes was weird. So, at, you know, being a medium, she knew, she kind of knew how to test me, and that was really fun. She took us back into the embalming area, and she showed me an embalming table that was portable and back a, a metal one, and you could take it out in the field or whatever you needed to do. It was all made of metal, and you could carry it with a carrying handle case. Anyway, she says, who do you see on here? And I immediately saw this this little woman. I mean, she was very young, pregnant, in a flowered dress, and she was, and I said, I see, I told her all of this, and she said, oh, that's Essie. Essie died while she was pregnant. We're not quite sure who killed her. I know her parents were very disapproving of this pregnancy, and we feel that she was molested by somebody in the family, mm. and um, it, it was just so heartrending, you know, to see this poor pregnant girl on this table being embalmed. So it was It was just really neat to talk to another medium. And Nora, by the way, is part of the, the local sisters group. I'm going to see here if I've got the name. Yeah, Paranormal Sisters Investigators. And so it's. I can, can't stress enough that if you do go to Tombstone, be sure to, to go on their guided tour because you've got a medium with you and she just really picks up on so much stuff. And they're set up in the Undertaker shop that's there. On, right. Is that what street? What is the street called? That's that main thoroughfare there. I don't know. Okay, I was just wondering if it was Main Street. Most of them are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, I want to talk a little bit about, if I could, about just the theater of the mind for a second. Tell you what that place must have smelled like and been like at that time. It's wonderful, yes. Mine, um, you know, because most of us think we know this from like Western movies that we've seen, but at that time, you know. There was this slaughterhouse in town, a local beef slaughterhouse, that just would channel buckets of cattle blood out into the street. So, you know, you could find yourself ankle deep in this stuff if you didn't look where you were walking in it. And there was little or no rainfall, so it just has to be really, it had to have been quite unpleasant. And it was right in town. And then there was like horse plunk and cow plunk and tobacco smoke and animal hides for the cowboy vests and the boots. And it it just, I don't know. I think the only really pleasant stuff would have probably been the cologne and perfume on the local salon salon, uh, or saloon ladies and stuff. Or maybe cooking in the local 
eating establishment. And then you had this, I had this sense of sound when I was there too. Like you could hear real saloon music. There are a lot of reenactors that walk around the town. So you hear this jangle of cowboy spurs and there's cattle noises from the town slaughterhouse, obviously. And then there's just sort of a, a very wealthy upper crust that was there that that had stayed in the grand saloon and the upper stories of that were very posh and, you know, velvet furniture and very getting into the Victorian era and gorgeous stuff. So it was just a weird place. I mean, and then they had, like they tell you they had 14,000 people there at the time, but they only had, um, they were only counting white males over the age of 18. (laughs) So, you know, you're not talking about the whole group of Chinese that we brought in to the local, um, you know, railroads and how suddenly they get done with that work and we want them out of our country. So they're hiding underground and they've got opium dens and so forth and are just trying to run laundries and, and kind of survive. And so the whole town kind of was moving in, in, on eggshells a lot of the time because if you were a minority or whatever, there was, you know, there was really, it was scary. I just, you know, when you did those scents... <laughs> I don't know how anybody could even walk down the street without hurling. (laughs) Well, and she didn't add in that those men did not really bathe a whole lot either. So you can add BO to all of the... Probably too, but, you know, and that's one of the things that you see this business in movies where people put a a kerchief over their faces, Mm -hmm. Um, not in a bandito kind of way, but, you know, that's usually a perfumed uh, kerchief to kind of get you through the street without, you know, without you getting sick to your stomach from chamber pots that have been emptied and all sorts Uh. of icky stuff, you know. No wonder they had disease rifling through these places. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Graveyard was really odd. I'm not, you know, not, any of us in the East or whatever would not have been, would not have known quite what to make of this graveyard because it's really chalky soil and it has graves that seem more buried, like the bodies were more buried under rocks than they were buried in soil. The Clanton clan on their tombstones, which were mainly made of whitewashed wood, it said murdered. I mean, they just summarily said murdered on all these tombstones. And I thought, yeah, they, you know, it's not like they were shot by police disobeying the law or anything. They were murdered. (laughs) And so there were really two different points of view of what was going on there. Unlike the movies we see where the the Earps are really portrayed as the good guys. Yeah, so what you're talking about here is the... OK Corral shootout. And that's usually how I would look at it is it was between the Earps and the Clantons. I wouldn't necessarily say between the good guys and the bad guys. There was just some bad blood between these two Mm -hmm. families and it finally came to a head. And what's interesting about it is it only lasted 30 seconds. And yet everybody, when you talk about the OK Corral, that's what they think, the shootout. And there were three men that were dead at that. Like you said, there was Billy Clanton, which was one of the Clanton family, and then Tom McLory and Frank McLory, who were really good friends with the Clanton family. The Earps came, you got Virgil, Wyatt, Morgan, and they brought Doc Holliday with them. Right. And they all walked away. I believe Virgil was hit in the leg and Morgan, I think, was shot in the shoulder, but they all survived. So it's interesting that they would put that on the uh, tombstones there. And this is at the Boot Hill Cemetery. 
Do you right. know why they call, there's several of these around the country. I believe Hayes, Kansas is where the original one is. Do you know why they called them Boot Hill? Did they tell you there at all? No. I guess apparently because most of the people buried there were gunfighters and they died with their boots on. Okay. So that's where they got the Boot Hill Cemetery from. Wow. You know, back then they did put the cause of death generally on a tomb, but there were several that didn't have cause of death, and that, again, is a feast for the medium. I mean, I started writing down causes of death as I went from grave to grave with the unmarked ones, Mm -hmm. and then later you can go get, you know, a free pamphlet inside about, there's like a gift store at at the graveyard, and we got a pamphlet that tells you how how everyone in there died. So I was able to compare to um, to what I had written down. And Brad turned to me, my husband, and said, good shooting text. Because <laughs> um, I got like 80% of them right, which is, it's sort of remarkable, not from a medium's point of view, but the fact that when you're in a graveyard, all of them are talking to you at once. Oh, boy. So it's very hard to sort out who who died how. But you know that movie, A Million Ways to Die in the West, you would think it would all be gunshots out there, but it wasn't. I mean, there were astonishing different things that people died of. And there was this one tomb that said uh, simply, no names, nothing. It just said, two Chinese. (laughs) So I guess we're to assume that two Chinese people were buried there. And I kept getting hot, really hot when I looked at that tomb and I thought, was it a fire? And I later found out they died of this form of leprosy where you run this incredibly high fever and die pretty quickly. Wow, Wow. that's interesting. Leprosy. Yeah. Yeah. So that, and again, that's just using my soul senses and we all have those. So, you know, testing yourself in some of these settings is pretty interesting. Now, does sometimes, because you said you weren't scared, like with your first experience that it was very peaceful with your friend or your, your colleague's mom, but... There are some very malevolent spirits out there. And so have any of those like ever freaked you out or have they, have you sensed them? And like, what do you do when you get one of those? I clean and feel my aura right away, which is something I detail in the book. Um, And certainly if you were to type it into the internet, you'd probably get instructions about how to do it. But basically I have to tell you that mediums, because most of us really consider ourselves uh, people who talk to heaven quite a bit are not, we're pretty protected. I have to tell you that, you know, we really, we're pretty protected from that kind of thing. And so because we're protected, we tend to be the people who can stand them down a little bit, who can go in and and demand that they leave a setting um, or help them cross over if if that's their particular problem. So certainly some mediums will go and do exorcisms and go do a clean out of a particular space with sage and so forth because we are a little, we're more protected. I don't put up with a whole lot of crap there is, to tell you the <laughs> truth. And when I read for someone, I did not too long ago for a family member whose, whose husband was really a prankster, and he thought it was just hysterical to, to run our shredder in the middle of the night. And, you know, and there's nothing quite so scary as some something grinding away in your yeah. study, you know. And so I, I really had to get after him about that. I had to say, John, this is not funny. And you're affecting other people in my household. And you're, you're scaring us. And he stopped right away. But um, And I knew him. I knew he was a prankster. And, you know, he was the type who'd come bombing into a room and, and make this really inappropriate joke for the group that was there and that type of thing. So he's kind of a 
bull in a china shop type. But once I said, I'd be happy to do a, a free reading for your wife. I'll be happy to honor my obligation here. But you can't do that. You cannot do that again. And it didn't happen again after that. Oh, very good. Just basically saying, respect my space or else. You know, I won't read for you and your wife. His wife was not left in real good financial shape. And so she's sort of a shirt tail relative, and I had promised to do a free reading for her. And that's how I knew it was John, because the next day she called and said, you know that free reading you offer after his funeral? Well, I need it now. I said, happily. I'll happily do that. <laughs> um, so, you know, and happily, because I really don't want him hanging around pestering us in the middle of the night either it's interesting when you were talking about the chinese that they were talking about being hot i started thinking that maybe you were going to say they had died in the fire because they'd had two of them there one in 1881 and 1882 and 40 people lost their lives in that did you get any feelings like when you would be walking on the street anything about that i didn't we did have a tour guide give us a tour the last night we were there and the only thing I got really profoundly was was a sense of kind of spookiness about the hospital because let's face it that's where a lot of people went to die sure. and and then also I got um I got spirit orbs in our photos so I always tell people take it take photos if you can because if you put those photos on a computer, you can zoom into the images and very often see things inside the orb. And so spirit orbs, for anyone who doesn't know what they are, look like water spots on photos generally. Mm-hmm. And um, I always say be sure to zoom in on them because you can find things inside those. Very often that might be a message or a face or something important. Well, that's good advice because, you know, generally speaking, if it doesn't have a face, dust and water, like you said, can show up the same way. So it is good to zero in and see, is there a face there? Maybe it is something. Right. Yeah. So did you get to go inside of any other locations other than the the undertaker shop there? Oh, yeah. We went all, you know, all along the block there. uh, In a town that purportedly had 18,000 people at one point, there's really only two uh, blocks that have been left standing for historical purposes that would look like what you'd think of in a a typical Western. And I, you know, if you're going to travel that far, you may as well see all of it. See it all. (laughs) Yeah. But it's very weird because I come in blind. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I really don't know enough about it usually, and, and that's on purpose. Um, well, sure, you so don't want to... And you, right now, you're acting as my tour guide because you're probably <laughs> um, helping me understand why I was seeing what I was seeing, too. Oh, exactly. I mean, if I'm, you go in there... Knowing the history of the place. Yeah, if right? you go in there already knowing that, you're just going to automatically be biased into seeing things or hearing things, and then it yeah. makes you question, is that for real right. or... Impressions are very, I mean, they can be very remarkable. We have a place here called Four Paws Restaurant in, in St. Paul. And um, my, it, I, when, before we went there, I said to my husband, okay, there is a kicking motion. There's a kicking motion and, I, and there's stairs. And I don't know what this means. And I later found out, and I thought maybe the master of the estate had kicked this, this one of those female servants down the stairs or done something. But in fact, she hung herself in the back stairs. Hmm. and kicked the stool away. Oh, wow. So those are the kinds of impressions you'll get. And then finding out what the real, the true story behind it was is, is really kind of cool and fun in a way. Oh, I would think it would be fascinating to be you and go in and be like, well, I just saw this or felt this and then hear the true story behind it and be like, whoa. Yeah. Why am I getting this impression and that impression? Again, we, m- most of us have, have these abilities. 
um, if you pay attention to your chakras and pay attention to the imagery you're getting before you go into a haunted place or even and write it down if you can and then you know find out how it how it kind of lines up with what the tour guide's telling you about that location. The old Tombstone Hotel has a haunted room. Room 119 had a guest who hung himself one night and now reportedly has decided to never check out. His disembodied voice is heard and objects move about the room. Apparitions of cowboys and stagecoach drivers have been seen at various locations. The Crystal Palace Saloon seems to be one of their favorite locations to visit. And Denise, we have a woman in white for Tombstone. Of course we do have to have a woman in white if it's the most haunted place. She is seen on the main street of Tombstone wearing a long white dress. There are two tales behind her haunting. She was either a mother so distraught over her child's death from yellow fever that she killed herself, or on the seedy side of things, she was a madam of a brothel and she was hanged for her crime. So she was either this wonderful mother who was so in love with her children that she would kill herself when they left or totally the opposite. (laughs) Alrighty then. That always makes you wonder, how do they come up with some of these stories? It would seem the Old West is still alive in Tombstone. Do the cowboys, ladies of the evening, prospectors, and gunfighters of the past still carry on in Tombstone today? Is the town haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, Janice, is there anything else you wanted to share with the listeners before we let you go? Well, just that if you get a chance to go out to Tombstone, be sure you check out the the different places that we're talking about. Bring your camera. You're going to get spirit orbs. And definitely check out Nora at the uh, Sister Paranormal Investigators, Paranormal Sisters Investigators, because she's so knowledgeable and she's channeling so much information. Where can people find your uh, book, Soul Sensing? Amazon.com or my website, JaniceCarlson.com. That's fabulous. Well, Janice, I want to thank you for joining us. This has been a fascinating discussion, and I really enjoyed it. Yes, thank I you did so too. much for having me, Diane and Denise. I really appreciate it. I'm a regular listener, so it's really a thrill to be on. I know. I was so touched that you said that you listen to the show and that you really enjoy it. And I was like, oh, that is so cool. Oh, I just I just don't want to miss anything. I just love it. I love it. And I know other people are catching on to it more now, too. Well, it's neat because just talking about how, like, you're, you're like, well, what I do is not what you do. Where we research and try to find the hauntings, you don't want any research. And so we're kind of like the yin and yang there a little bit. Yeah, it's so <laughs> nice of you really to be able to fill in the blanks for me, you know, that it, because I don't, I go in blind. It's so nice to hear that someone did some research about it, you know. Well, yeah, and it's... It's nice for us to hear that, yeah, there, that really is something there. It's not just, you know, because a lot of the stuff we're just relaying rumors, mm-hmm. secondhand stories, you know, it's not something that we've experienced ourselves. We've had a couple of things happen to us that possibly could have been supernatural in nature, but most of the time it's like, okay, well, somebody said this and somebody said that, but it's it's kind of fun when you have somebody who's like, nope, I'm hearing <laughs> them loud and clear. <laughs> I felt yep, it. Yep, yeah. For sure, yeah. yeah it's, um, it's a wonderful gift, and it is a gift, and, and I'm glad that I'm able to share it with people to help them feel better after a loss. Very cool. Well, let us know when you get the other book done, because we definitely want to have you back for that, because you're hitting all kinds of great places, and we'll want to hear about those, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Janice. You take care. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Denise and I visited a little bit further with Janice, and we asked her some interesting questions, like children ghosts. What was her opinion on that? We also talked about, of all places, hell, and some interesting theories there that we all shared or 
did not necessarily share, but we discussed it. Wasn't really appropriate for talking about haunted tombstones so much, so we thought we would go ahead and put that material towards bonus cast number nine, which will be coming out in a few days for those of you who are supporters at the five dollar or more level. So hopefully you will enjoy that. We we enjoyed having that discussion with her. It was an absolutely fascinating time with Janice, I think. On our next show, we're going to go out to Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas, Yes, indeed. This is a suggestion from our listener, Heather. She's also an executive producer of the show. She's going to be going out there in October. And she said, hey, are there some haunted places there in Las Vegas? Well, there just happens to be a few. And we're going to talk about two of them, the Flamingo and Bally's Casinos. Those should be fantastico. We want to thank you guys for listening to this one. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Executive producers of the show have been... Levi Drescher. Rachel Cooper. Dan Foytick. Janice Carlson. Patty Hunt. Stephen Pappas. Jade Lewis. Heather Williams. Dave and Ann Student. Amy Connor. And Leanna Sapien. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hello, this is Victoria from victoriaslift.com. When I'm not taking those who must choose their destiny for a ride on the lift, I'm listening to History Goes Bump podcast. History isn't boring, it's terrifying. The past remains with us, and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past.